with half an eye on history, half an ounce of hope, sold his soul in the vestry. Money borrowed, rope, been this way a million times, but now his time is nigh. He steps into the spotlight. He wants to say hi, hello. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 169 is Wesley Stace, who started performing in England in the 1980s as John Wesley Harding. His first release, a live album, was in 1988. You're right now listening to the title track from his first studio album, Here Comes the Groom, 1990. He moved to the U.S. in 91, has had over 20 releases, and has written four novels. We're going to discuss The Impossible She from his most recent album, 2021's Late Style. Then When I Knew from the 2013 album Wesley Stace. That's the first one he released under his own name. And then Your Ghost Don't Scare Me No More from the 1998 album Awake. We'll conclude by listening to another track off of Late Style, Come Back Yesterday. For more information, see wesleystace.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And to support what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little of Here Comes the Groom, the title track from your 1990 debut studio album. We're going to get pretty quickly to the new thing. Can we get some encapsulation of the journey from there to here? I know in 2013, you switched back to your own name. So that's something. I didn't really know what I was doing when I started. And Sire, I've had a lot of songs. And Sire hooked me up with producer Andy Paley, with whom I made my first two records. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to take a little bit more control over what I was doing. Because I felt on those records that on some of them I was a little bit overpowered by the band or the band was too mm-hmm. much the center of it. So I made an album called Why We Fight with Steve Berlin. And that was the first album where I kind of really found thought that I knew what I was doing. And then I hooked up with a producer called Chris von Snyden. I made a bunch of records with him, which were really me in control. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. And that's when I think things started really cooking for me in the mid nineties and made albums in various styles and, and kept doing so often kind of hijacking other people's bands. That was a favorite thing of mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used the Decemberists on one band and the minus five on another and the Jayhawks on another, all different bands that I like. And, And that's a fun way to make an album, because if you do that, you can pick the songs you have that you think will sound good with those musicians. But, you know, then we arrive at this new album. And for the new album, I wanted to do something. I was thinking, you know, I've made so many different albums, but all in the kind of basically, basically in a folk rock style, given that. in the meantime, you could make beats and do looping and Mm -hmm. all the various tedious developments of music in the last 30 years. But I kind of felt it'd be really fun to make an album that wasn't strictly in the folk singer, rock, folk, rock, rock singer style. And I realized that a lot of what I listen to in the kitchen when I'm cooking, which is when I do most of my music listening and I cook for long periods of time, is basically kind of jazzier records like, you know, Sergio Mendes and Herbie Mann and slightly more swinging records, Dave Frischberg and Bob Durr and stuff like that. And I just thought, why can't I do that? I should be able to do that. Like Tom Lehrer, you know, like white men have been making lyrics and singing wordy songs for many years. And there's a whole tradition of 
Bob Dylan and Randy Newman. But the Randy Newman thing really kind of goes back to Mose Allison. So when you think of somebody like Mose Allison, that's a swing in very jazzy kind of music, but you're not missing the good lyrics. So I thought I wanted to make an album where the lyrics were right out front, but the music was more swinging and more jazzy. And I mean, we can talk about how that happened. But I had to make a big decision, the most important of which was, you don't write the best melodies for that. You write folk rock melodies. So let's have somebody else write the melodies. And so for the first ever time, I turned to my friend David Nagler, MD's The Cabinet of Wonders, and I said, you know the music I love. You know what I want this to sound like. Help me. All right. So the one that I chose from Late Style, The Impossible She, was not as locked into that obviously 60s jazz thing as some of the others, but there's still plenty of that on here. Um, Can you say a little about this song in particular before they hear it? It was an incredibly romantic lyric and also rather a, a sad lyric in some ways. And I didn't know what David would hand me back on this one. But he knows that I'm a bit of a sucker for that kind of prefab sprouty kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, slightly waves of synth pop. And so we just needed to find a comfortable or, you know, other people might a band. It might surprise you to know that I've never been particularly into bizarrely because I know they're great. They just don't sing to me really loud is Steely Dan. I mean, I like them. I just don't love them. I've never loved that band. And I think it's quite telling that my favorite Steely Dan song is Dirty Work, which Donald Fagan doesn't even sing, you know. Sure. Early style before they became that thing. Exactly. But this song goes a bit in that Steely Dan kind of direction, certainly the furthest I'm ever likely to go in it. And I just love singing these songs. It's such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful experience to sing these lyrics that I hope were lovely lyrics over such you know, seductive melodies. And I think David did a beautiful job arranging it. I mean, the album came together in a very complicated, long process because of COVID, which has affected so much Mm -hmm. of our culture and our psychology over the last two and a half years. And this album was ready to be recorded before COVID even hit. I had most of the songs in the can. Then we started when COVID hit. This is weird. When COVID hit, my first thought was, oh, no one's going to be doing any recording. Let's put out these songs in the demo state that they're in. And then I thought about that for a bit. And I was like, no, no, no. The the last thing the world needs now is scruffy demos because everybody was doing Zoom concerts in their PJs. and, And I understand that that's all great. And everybody was making a little bit of money finally. And, but it just wasn't for me at all. And I, I just thought that I needed to make this album as stylish and as fully realized a beautiful artistic statement as I possibly could. So for the next year, David and I really worked hard to get the demos, which these essentially are sounding as beautiful as possible. And having my friends in Chicago sing on the record, have Prairie Prince drum on the record in San Francisco, where I knew I could hand it over to Chris von Snyden, my very good friend and collaborator who produced New Deal with me, the first record I just mentioned after Why We Fight, where I finally got my own thing together. He helped me with that and he's been helping me ever since. And so I know that I can give it to him in my absence because I don't do any recording myself of any nature whatsoever. And so we gave it to Chris and, and charted out the trumpets and the saxes and Prairie Prince kind of did the drumming to the tracks we had. I mean, it's beautiful how it came together. And what the most beautiful thing of all is how beautiful it sounds. It doesn't sound in any way impoverished by COVID or separation or distant recording or anything. 
once upon the water I could make the dark illuminate the sky I'd take you to the furthest sea Then beyond geography Where the desert's wet The oceans are bone dry I could magic all the traffic from the freeway I could make the great Alhambra disappear I'd whisper you three wishes As your problems slowly vanish I'd banish them Beyond the atmosphere These things are easy to do I learned them from you And you don't As I ghostwrite your novel on my own I do not ask for credit And if anybody read it I would say the words Were yours and yours alone I could make a double rainbow from a raindrop I could show you hell And heaven in a tear I'd help you pick the lock On your lover's mailbox So his motivations were made clear These things are easy to do I learned them from you And you don't want me to Don't want me to
So I saw you do a solo acoustic version of this. So those are recorded after the album. This is your sort of way of promoting it. Is that these YouTube versions that you've been releasing to other songs off here? I wouldn't even call it a way of promoting it. It was a, my fans are my fans. My, the people who like my music are used to seeing me play songs often solo acoustic or in a duo format. So I just thought it was a nice gesture. To the, uh, well, firstly, it was a nice gesture to those people to be able so they could hear these songs in a way they more associate with me. But also for me, it was kind of an Everest to climb to play some of these songs because David wrote the chords to them. And although there are certain songs, Come Back Yesterday, The Impossible She, actually, and How You Will Work Me. Those three songs I play the acoustic guitar on live when I play with the band. Ah. But on all the other songs, rest of the songs, I just sing while the band plays those arrangements. So I knew full well that I would be going out to tour this album solo or in a duo format because, you know, you can't afford to have a... The Late Style show is elaborate and ambitious. And I know I can't do that everywhere. If I go and do a house concert or something, you know, the we haven't even got the sound system that you can do that show with. And the, we use computers and all kinds of rubbish. So I knew it was necessary for when I did go and do shows, if I wanted to play these songs, to actually learn them. Who would the second player be? A keyboardist or a drummer or what, if you're doing this as a duet? Oh, well, when I tour as a duo, it's normally my friend Robert Lloyd. He plays the mandolin and the accordion. You know, it's pretty folky. But, you know, say you said to me, hey, Wes, can you play Do Nothing If You Can? It would be astonishingly lame if I couldn't. I mean, to me, that would be an insufferable situation if a DJ said, oh, I love, you know, where the bands are. Can you play that one for us? And I was like, no, I can't. So to me, it was very important to find versions of the song. It was a lot of hard work to find versions of the song. So, you know, where the bands are on the album, it's like, and you can't really do that on the acoustic guitar. So I came up with this because that is something that not only kind of is what it is on the album, but is also something I can play on the acoustic guitar. So it was a question of boiling these songs down, reducing them like a source into the best thing that I could do solo on the guitar. So each one I worked for, you know, about, I mean, it depends, but, you know, about a day to knock out that version uh, solo acoustic. And, and I think during the pandemic, I think people have enjoyed things in little series that they can follow along day by day or week by week, like Bandcamp Fridays or, mm-hmm. you know, Family Quiz on Thursdays or whatever it is, you know, but I think that's been a very helpful thing to people for people through the pandemic. So I just thought I'd put all those solo versions up there. I don't think there's any promotional aspect to it at all. I should think some one person probably bought the vinyl of my LP. But apart from that, it was purely so I could learn the songs. And I'm good with a deadline. So I, I realized that if I got this deadline going, then it would be worth doing. And I really enjoyed it too. But it was hard work. All right. Well, so even with the impossible she that there is guitar on the recording, I think it comes in halfway in the song on at least as far as I could hear that it's, it's a keyboard dominated song. So there's no version of this where you wrote it or play it on piano or anything like that, right? It's just... I can't play the piano. So you can get get (laughs) piano right out of it. I mean, it is true that the cover of the album does feature a picture of me playing the piano. (laughs) And I have been known to play the piano and with some gusto and vigor. 
but I mean, I can't really play the piano beautifully. I can plunk along in a way that Neil Young would consider a bit plunky, if you know what I mean. And I do actually quite like to play the piano, but I'm not very good at it. So it's got to be guitar for me. And you're right. I mean, Impossible She's a pretty easy one because it's, it's just nice chords. A few major sevens. But a lot of those chords that David plays, you know, I, I just don't know those chords. I've, I've not been used to playing samba songs with uh-huh. flattened sevenths and plus nine. And I just don't know those chords. And so I really had to work out versions where I could play the songs. And you're right, on Impossible She, the guitar only comes in, I think, at the second verse. I know it's sort of a, a natural extension as an acoustic player, especially of, you know, it's easy to get to fall into the same licks. And so expanding the chords, at least in ways that make sense for your fingers, you might not know what they're called, but like, oh, let's move the three fingers up four frets. And wow, that's a nice open sound. Or I don't know, do you mess with alternate tunings or anything like that? Totally. And I mean, you know, and that's what I've done for the last 20, mm-hmm. 25 years. Doug Julin, you know who that is? No. Doug Julin played in a band called Poy Dog Pondering. He's in a band called The Sunshine Boys now. He played with, you know, me and Scott McCoy and Doug did a tour together called John Wesley Harding's All Male Threesome. It's like he's been involved with many things and, and is a very good friend of mine. And he said, I remember when he listened to one song off whatever album it was, he was like, I can never work out whether you're just like a idiot and your fingers are just falling where they're falling or whether, you know, like this is all carefully planned out. The truth is it's somewhere between the three of them because I've always really liked this kind of, you know... And what that comes from for me is folk music, because all folk music, which is how I learned to play the guitar and what I first learned to play is basically as well. You and your listeners know is, you know, most apart from finger, it's a lot of it's about the bass drum. You often hear when you hear a heavy metal guitar player to play the acoustic guitar, you get a lot of or like a rocker. You often get a lot of this kind of thing. But when a folk player plays the guitar, you know, you get a lot of the bass drum. And from that bass drum, I find a lot of the melody and the song structure comes from. And I find that I found that very useful in my songwriting. But this was way beyond that. I don't know if you can locate the song. And in fact, it isn't available in any digital version. So the answer is you probably can't. But I had all these lyrics for late style and I really liked the lyrics. I thought it was such a good set of lyrics and I thought it was good for this. What in my mind was this, you know, Tom Lehrer-like, Mose Allison-like, more swinginger version of it that would be a lovely milieu in which to hear these songs. And one of them was called Can't Read the Signs. And I wrote a melody for Can't Read the Signs and I put it on a tape and I was like, okay, well, I'll go over it. I, I wanted to see my friend Pete Donnelly from the Figs. And so I went over to the studio and Patrick Berkery, my drummer, came over and we cut a version of this song, Can't Read the Signs. I was just like, this is just the kind of swinging thing. This is going to be perfect for what I want. And when I got it back, I was like, well, it's great, but it's just folk rock. I mean, it's just another folk rock mm-hmm. song, which I really liked, but it was like, it wasn't what I wanted. And hearing that was when I went, handed over to David Nagler. But what happened was, 
about a year before Late Style came out, I put out this book, which is the Late Style Lyric Book, which includes all the lyrics to what an album that nobody knew it was called Late Style, and nor did I, that wasn't going to come out for another year. And with it was this seven-inch single on which Can't Read the Signs is, which was why that song is not on the record. I mean, is it really when you're writing lyrics that you don't have some sort of at least rhythmic articulations in mind such that then you're getting an actual melody? Like I could see working with somebody else for the chords and like, I'm just going to be the the singer and I'm, you know, I'll tape something on my phone and send it to you. You work it up into a fancy arrangement. I could see that. But the idea of, you know, doing that, you're actually the Bernie Taupin turning over the lyrics to somebody else, sending it back to you and then having to sort of cover your own material that seems that's a good question but of course when you do write you do have a melody in mind quite often and you definitely have a rhythm in mind and nobody's lyrics are more imperially old-fashioned in their rhyming schemes and de-dum 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 de-da de-dum that's just how i write i mean you know that's one version of a hundred little crummy structures that i use But the fact is, they do. And what I would do is when I would send them to David, I would say to him, oh, I would also send him an audio recording of me reading the lyric. So he knew exactly where the stresses would come. So in other words, I would say, we ate at Bob's Big Boy the night I arrived. And that is where he would find his melody and his rhythm from. And I found that was a very successful way of making sure that it kind of came out like I wanted. But then what would happen, which is where it got really interesting, was he'd send me something back. And of course, I'd listen to it and go, okay, well, that doesn't work because the chorus appears too many times if this is to be the melody. So what we need to do is make the verses twice as long and the chorus can only come once every what is now one verse, but used to be mm-hmm. two or three, but you see what I mean? Or I would say, this song is great, but it hasn't got a hook and the hook should be. And then I'll go to a piano and plunk out my little voice memo of the California fix. I remember, I remember waking up one morning going, oh, that's what it should be. And then I'd hand that to David and he'd rejig it into that. And, you know, there was a process of give and take, but Mm -hmm. he wrote the melodies. I probably screwed them up a bit afterwards, but for bits that I could sing like me. Even the pauses, I would say the words are yours and yours alone. That would be in the thing you would submit. Or is that a matter of you have the melody, now you can actually, like a swing singer, add some pauses and, add, you know, because it's not all da dum da dum da dum It's actually kind of free-floating like you're on the mic. Yeah, once you start singing them, you're going to sing them in the way you can sing them to express those in the best way. I wrote a bunch of places where there are little pauses in there that like, okay, what, you know, if you had written this as a short story, I don't know exactly where those might come into the process. If that was a thing that just is when your voice is actually articulating it, or if it is somehow conceptually relevant, but... They are conceptually relevant sometimes, aren't they? I mean, you know, a pause can be extremely important. And there are certainly in Your Bright Future, which is kind of the, I think, kind of the centerpiece song of the record. There's a lot of like little bits of, I hope, a lot of bits of nuance in the delivery. Very freeing experience. We'll get the second song out there pretty soon. But let me actually ask you about this story. So are you writing these 
This is like a short story. Are these at all personal expressions or imaginative expansions of personal expressions? But I mean, this thing about ghostwriting and you can work on your movie, it sounds like you had some particular kind of scene in mind. Every song is different and every little piece of inspiration comes from a different place. I write notes the whole time without turning them into songs. And then when I'm writing a song, I look back at those notes and kind of pick and choose little bits and bobs. Sometimes they weren't originally linked. Other times they were. Sometimes you have a direct inspiration for a song. For example, the first song where the bands are is kind of clearly about showing some kind of slight disdain for those people who, for whom the rock and roll or musical experience is best enjoyed with those efforts to get to see the band backstage and like that's where all the action is whereas really to the band that's a tedious irrelevance to what's happening the only bit that's real of which is the bit when you are actually playing and the rest of it's just the other 22 hours of the day that you want to forget entirely and, you know, an Instagram and letting people know, oh, I'm here and, you know, all this stuff. And so that, that kind of had a, mm-hmm. that was my impetus. And it ended up being the first song on the album because it was the first song that David and I wrote in the process. And it sounded like an introduction for me. But then Everything All the Time is a song I've been trying to write for years and years. And I remember having the initial idea watching some baggage go around a carousel in some airport waiting for my guitar. I mean, just years ago. And it just took me a long time to write it. And also because the world just got so much more everything all the time. You know, when I started writing that song, there may not have even been internet. And then when I finally released the song, my daughter goes, what's that guy's name? Oh, Bo Burnham. My daughter, who's 15, goes, oh, there's a Bo Burnham song where he sings everything all the time at the end. I was like, what? So although having said that, she's the only person in any review or anything that has mentioned this huge Bo Burnham song on his special. I was actually just Googling that as we were talking to like, remember who who did that? But no, good to hear that you scooped him by (laughs) predating him. (laughs) Not only predated him, but our demo, our first demo of everything all the time was probably recorded before Bo Burnham even had done his first live gig. I mean, it's a really (laughs) old, you know, that's the oldest of these songs. So it's like, where does it all come from in the end? It's difficult to know, but I did feel that there was a kind of stuff I wanted to say about love and the world and all the things that are all our concerns. It's easier in a sense to talk about a specific line than it is for me generally about, I mean, you know, you can tell what each song's meant to be about, you know, all the use is a, it's a love song about being baffled and in love and feeling left out and included. And whereas How You Will Work Me is a very sarcastic song about people who complain about making music, which is such a wonderful thing to be able to do and for an audience and and a public to allow and pay them to do. So it's, kind of making fun of myself anytime I feel like complaining about it. The impossible she, uh, maybe passive aggressive came to mind. (laughs) It is slightly mournful, but it's also, Uh, you can just say no, that's fine. (laughs) No, I'm generously trying to think. It starts off, you know, with this kind of general sweeping poetic stuff. I can make lightning dance upon the water, desert wet, the ocean's bone dry. I could make the Alhambra disappear. And then it gets to, you know, by this later verse, 
talking about her making her movie and, and I could ghostwrite your novel. Very specific in a way that to me, it's about it's. Oh God, this sounds so weird trying to articulate. But to me, it's about it's a subject I've returned to many times, and in fact, I just wrote an opera about, which is kind of the degradation of myth. Which is, it starts out in this incredibly mythical, you know, the elements and you know, and all this stuff, and it ends up with someone's going to fuck you upstairs while I'm in the kitchen. The last verse is, uh-huh. I could take you out for dinner if you let me, or I could make you breakfast, bring it you in bed, go downstairs and play guitar, having left the door ajar so someone else can pour your tea instead. I nearly said so someone else can stir your tea instead, but I thought that was a bit gross. <laughs> so um, it's about feeling left out in that moment. Passive aggressive doesn't spring to mind. What does spring to mind of that song is longing and fear of failure romantic longing, just like all the use. And what that's about is, you know, I can do all these things. I am a magical person and you are not interested in that because you can do them too. You don't need me. I do not complete you in any way. A lot of my songs are often written from a, I like it to sound as romantic as possible, but I'm not unaware of how difficult situations are. And I generally tend to write Something in the person you are is is that from 1991 or whenever the, that song was. It's a common thing that I write about. Before we get on to that second song, let's stop and do our sponsor break. The Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. The Nebbia story is a profound, inspirational tale of some folks who were very passionate about water savings. One of the co-founders uh, was on the Apple iPhone team. They're a former Tesla and NASA engineers also involved, and they designed showerheads that attracted the interest of some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, to create a superior shower experience that is affordable to you and saves the planet. Their most affordable shower yet is the Nebbia by Moen Quattro. Quattro is the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower designed in partnership with industry leader Moen, leveraging their respective strengths to create a new cutting-edge product that paves the way for conservation efforts around the world and furthers their joint goal to save 1 billion gallons of water by 2023. I have this. I use it. It has four spray modes, the classic spa spray and two powerful high-pressure spray modes, and then one for washing babies and the dog and stuff like that. All modes are very luxuriant, and each mode saves you 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower. This product was simple, simple for me to install. I put it upstairs. I put it downstairs. I put it upstairs again. I would not do that if you couldn't just take it off and put it on willy-nilly. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com, and Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. All right, let's get the second song out there. So uh, When I Knew from the self-titled Wesley Stace 2013 album, this is similar in quite a few ways. It's almost exactly the same tempo as the song we just heard. That was not my intention. But of course, it's a you know coming from an R&B place rather than a jazz place. And That's actually interesting you say that because I would say that when I... You see, what happened was I made all these albums under the name John Wesley Harding, which was all going perfectly fine. And I just had my first album for Yet Rock, 
which was uh, out of my memory, the Decemberist called The Sound of His Own Voice. And just after that, I had started publishing novels under my real name because I didn't want the name John Wesley Harding to be on the side of these. The first one was kind of a Dickensian literary hardcore masterpiece theatre is what it was called Misfortune and based on a song I'd written years ago on an album called Awake called Misfortune. And I didn't want John Wesley Harding to be on the spine of these books. I thought that would be ridiculous. So I did them under my own name. But the books were kind of taking up more of my time and promotional energies because I was traveling all over the world to Japan to promote these books to you know, France and Italy and, all, and Spain. It was wonderful. And it just got ludicrous having two names, Wesley Stace and John Wesley Harding. To start with, it made people introducing me have an incredibly long task. To, and I, I just didn't, I got tired of hearing it. So I thought, screw it. I'll just make albums under my own name. Well, of course, nobody likes that. Record companies don't want you to change your name. Gigs don't want you to change your name because you, the audience knows you as this. You either have to just have one name or you have to have a million names like Bonnie, Billy, Bonnie, Prince, Billy. And, you know, and, you, and like everybody, nobody knows where they are at all. So it's either one or the other. Only Mellencamp did it successfully. You have to, you have to add a transitional John Wesley Harding Stace or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And um, don't think that wasn't an influence. I think only me and Elton John are the people to add John to our names over the years. So I thought, well, I'll do is Wesley Stace. And it just so happened that that first lot of songs I was writing, that was the Wesley Stace album self-titled, which I think was my best record by a long way. I adore that record. And it just happened that they were, for the first time in my life, a very autobiographical set of songs. Not songs that merely all songs are autobiographical and tell the listener all about you, even if specifically trying not to. I know about Bob Dylan, whether the songs are autobiographical or not. He's putting a lot of himself out there and into those songs. But these songs were not only that, they were also specifically autobiographical. So that, when I knew, it sounds bizarre now to say it, and I don't know how many verses there are, but that is the moment I met the most important people I've had love relationships with in my life. And the last verse is about my wife. of her white socks just beneath the desk Her pants didn't reach all the way down her legs And you know what happened next I said hi politely And we went out for coffee Yeah, yeah, yeah And that was when I knew That was when I knew I was wrong That was when I knew they said we like weird music And she played Miss Soft Machine And lent me a record that badly warped Which screwed up everything I was broke just 15 I scoured London for a replacement Found one cheap in an Oxford Street basement Yeah, yeah, and that was when I knew That was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong That was when I knew That was when I knew I'm better 
my bedroom at a party Halloween And she was wearing a pair of dungarees I sang, come on Eileen I was being slightly mean And it just made her smile Which made me feel childish Yeah, yeah, yeah That was when I knew That was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong That was when I knew That was when I knew well, we played a song from scratch that night And when she'd done with singing She just took off stage right Left us winging it And the band went down swinging As she made her exit arms in the air Well, I caught her eye, I was unprepared That was when I knew, that was when I knew I was wrong That was when I knew, that was when I knew Up at the hotel In an old red Mustang Took me to a demonstration Of strum and drag She listened I sang And we drove to Dallas rather than Flying cause we didn't Feel like dying And I couldn't get her out of my head So I got her out of Hers instead I couldn't get her out of my head so I got her out of hers instead I couldn't get her out of my head And we ended up in bed She glided by on antique roller skates And overtook our car I watched her disappear From where we parked It was just south of Market in the Castro sun she glistened And when she spoke, I listened That was when I knew, that was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong That was when I knew, that was when I knew I Said I cook a curry Which got me in her kitchen But a friend turned up by chance And my spice seemed less bewitching Which left me feeling itchy she stayed for one old bottle of wine But we played it cool, we bide our time That was when I knew, that was when I knew So this is one that you actually, since I know you did not write the fundamentals of the music for the late style stuff, I wasn't asking you about the arrangements, but here we've got pretty clearly, can you say a little about sort of picking this set of sounds you know, it's a pretty straight ahead acoustic, sort of very trebly R&B sounding bass, strong drums with maybe what light shaker instead of hi hat, like the, that he's not playing hi hat. Yeah, I wouldn't allow. I yeah. didn't allow any cymbals on this record, and very little hi hat. And Pat, the drummer, had a massive bruise on his leg at the end of the session because he was hitting to keep the cymbal time. Which hand would that be? If you're right-handed, then you're doing cymbal with your right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but he had a big bruise on his thigh from playing the cymbal on his on his leg. And what happened was, I knew that I wanted to have a really stripped-down sound because around this time, I also made a major realization that it would have helped me if I'd made many years before, which is that I don't have a rock and roll voice. 
I mean, I can project my voice above a rock and roll band, but I think the really good rock and roll voice needs quite a harsh edge to it, be it Dylan, David Bowie, polystyrene. Singers have their kind of vocal leaps that one associates with those particular voices. Each one of those voices, you can hear you know, what their thing is. I have a rather nice warm burgundy of a voice, as was once said of one of my favorite singers, Richard Sinclair of Caravan. I love his voice. And it made me think, oh, my voice can do that a little bit. So why don't I just quieten all the music back underneath me? So I wanted the backings to be very sparse. And one thing I thought was guitar gets in the way of the voice somehow and cymbals sometimes get in the way of the voice. And I thought, well, if I don't have acoustic guitar strumming through everything, and that was the first time ever I hadn't just strummed through every song on the record. And there are some, actually some very interesting, what I'll call outtakes from that album, which were full, much louder band recordings that just had no place on the record. They would have sounded great as a separate single, but I just couldn't put them on the records. In fact, three or four of the songs we absolutely spent the most time on because sometimes, you know, the more you put on things, kind of the more time you have to spend mixing it all and editing it all and all that stuff. So with when I knew what I suddenly, you know, while we were playing through it and routining the song, I definitely would have been me who came up with the and then we recorded it in what used to be called The Studio in Philadelphia, which was the studio of Larry Gold, who did all the cello parts on the Philly stuff. And Questlove had a room there. And, you know, it was a very nice place to be doing this stuff. And I'd always wanted strings. I knew that a lot of the stuff on the album, I just wanted to be basically my voice, guitar, and strings. There was a song called Audience of One that ended up on the Jayhawks album after that because we lost the lead vocal. I think the engineer wiped it. That wasn't my greatest moment in a recording studio ever. But songs like How to Fall, all I really wanted on the, or the bedroom you grew up in, all I wanted was my guitar and strings. I wanted it to be Baroque and quiet. With when I knew, once we got the strings and there was the idea of strings and we were playing that song, I was like, oh my God, we've got to double that part with strings. It's going to sound like the Philly soul sound that this absolutely should sound like. So when those strings are going, I was that made me so happy. And that is why it's a good song that you chose, which when you sent me the initial thing of here's what I intend to play, what interested me about it was that you had the song off Late Star and then When I Knew, because in my head, When I Knew is probably my first step in the direction of Late Style. And I remember when we were like listening to that song and routining it and put the strings on it, thinking, this is so nice. Like this is absolutely a place where my voice sounds pleasant to me. And it suits the intimacy of the song. And I really like it. And, I, and of course, David Nagler was playing, although I wrote all the songs on that album, David Nagler was you know, playing on that album as, a, as one of my musicians because he's been my MD for the Cabinet of Wonders show that I do for about 10 years or more now. So is he doing that R&B bass part or who's doing That's that? That's Eddie Carlson, okay. the bass player. In fact, the weird thing about Late Style is the bass sounds amazing on it and there isn't a real bass on the whole thing. Wow, okay. I was wondering with that, if that had been fretless or something. So you're saying that's keyboard bass or something? Or? All keyboard okay. bass. It's very good keyboard bass. It's both very well played and it's beautiful sounding. 
where the sound is a stand-up bass, fretless, electric bass, or just a bass, nobody has offered any complaints and there has been much praise and wonder why there's no bass credit on the album and stuff like that. The irony, of course, is that we partly did it because I liked it that way, because I was used to hearing it that way, because the demos were that way, because it sounded so great. But then when we went to play it live with the late style band and my regular bass player, Eddie Carlson, was playing these parts, I mean, they just sound fantastic. And he plays both stand up and regular bass. And the songs sound just great with him playing them all. I know some of the, on the first tune, a lot of the changes between the sections are just thickening it with additional keyboard, you know, that you've got sort of a flexible, it doesn't sound like... Unlike when I knew, apart from when the strings come in, it's like, this is the band that you've got the very prominent drums. So how are you determining you're adding, is it Shaker after the fact? I'm also thinking about the third song that we're going to do where there's some sort of like your ghost that has like triangle or something, something that is like, we got to fill the hi-hat spot, even there's no hi-hat. Your ghost is just its own story. And it's a good one too. But I mean, I just don't remember Okay, when I knew I haven't listened to it in years. I can't quite remember how the arrangement is, but certainly the idea with that song was not to build it to any crescendo. It was to have it float along and just feel like bliss the whole way through it. Another one on that album is a song called, a song I'm very fond of is a song called Canterbury Kiss, which is another one of these autobiographical songs. And the end of that goes completely float on. I mean, it's got that's the same two chords in it. And that's what, really what I was going for with when I knew as well. Possibly something to do with having moved to Philadelphia and liking it here. Although I've always been very, very keen on that music. You know, even as a kid, I remember watching Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes on Top of the Pops doing Don't Leave Me This Way with Teddy Pendergrass singing. And there's that long intro on that song. And I was like, how long is this going to go on for? And I mean, I must have been eight and it just spellbound me. And I've always been very fond of Teddy Pendergrass. Do Nothing If You Can on my new album is totally love TKO, you know, the kind of thing that I'm into. Teddy Pendergrass, I think about every day because he had his horrible car accident, which turned him into a quadriplegic or whatever it was that he then had a comeback after and sang on Live A, but meant he was in a wheelchair. That accident happened at the end of my street where I take my kids to school every morning. I go past the spot where that accident happened on Lincoln Drive. So I think about him quite a lot, really. And that song, Do Nothing If You Can, which we're not really talking about, but that song is purely like, why can't I have this with my lyrics? What lyric could I write that would suit, not what Philly Soul pastiche lyric could I write that would suit a Teddy Pendergrass type treatment, but what lyric could I write that would be like one of my lyrics? You know, you can't do a, your tribute to Love TKO say, and write a protest song about Russia invading Ukraine. It's not the right thing for that. That can be a folk song. That's fine. I've got my Phil Oaks guitar and that's all I need for that. So I needed to find a lyric that would beautifully suit that kind of thing. And, you know, a song about taking it easy because of lockdown. I call it my lockdown jam, that song. Anyway. Well, no, but I'm going to interpret that back in terms of when I knew that you're using a sort of R&B light breezy thing and you got wrong, wrong, wrong. You got some expressions of that, but it's still it's a 
story of the kind that would come out of your head, that would come out of your mouth. One of the interesting things I thought, you know, that it's so many verses, and other than this occasional break that you bring back the intro, mostly it just goes straight from one to the other, like with no pause, where it did take me a little while to figure out that you're not talking about the same woman through all these. Like, it would be impossible that you get to one that you talk about how you're 15 and then how you're on stage. Like, okay, clearly I can tell from context, but there's not the, the great division of like, and now we're entering, you know, there's nothing other than that, what the words mean to signal, we're now entering another scene here. Well, the, the listener has to do a little work uh-huh. as well. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not the only one doing the work here, you know. <laughs> it wasn't until you're just telling me this that, you know, I know that the earlier ones, this is when I knew I was wrong. And at the end, that's when I knew, but it's not, it doesn't hit you over the head that I wasn't wrong or that's, you know, that it's just, you're just merely not finishing the, the phrase. And 17 years later, we're still happily married. I can't remember whether it's precisely chronological, that song, but you know, that's a, quite a thing with those mo- moments when you first meet somebody, mm-hmm. you think back to those moments, right? And you never forget them. And some of them might not even be true in a weird sense because you've kind of conflated, oh yeah, maybe, oh, did I meet? Did we meet at that? You invent a story and that story becomes the origin story. And those are the seven or six or whatever it is, origin stories. Oh, I mean, true. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not making any of them up. So I guess it's, that was when I knew semicolon, I was wrong. You know, (laughs) that it's not the moment I saw her. That's when I knew that she was wrong for me. No, no, that's, it's, that is when I wrongly thought that this was I had found my life mate and then you know later found out every lyric I've ever written is exactly right on my website yeah well I've had this song called I'm wrong about everything that was a good song for me and was in the high fidelity soundtrack and so I I like being wrong about things I mean it's a thing that I generally you know and there's another song of mine on awake called it's all my fault it's just a complete theme in my writing and that's all completely true about that soft machine record. I mean, that was such a story in my youth. Um, I think that was when I knew, you know, it's like love at first sight. Mm -hmm. But then if you fall in love at first sight with somebody, then you're wrong about all the other times you did it. Sure. Everything in the past is immediately wrong. And everything now is immediately right. So that's when I knew that was when I knew I was wrong. There can be a colon there or a semicolon, but there needn't be one either. And all those things are in there. Like that Dylan line that Christopher Ricks analyzes, the highway is for gamblers, better use your sense. Well, everybody knows what that means. You should use your common sense if you're a gambler on the highway. But in that line is the highway is for gamblers, better, a better is a gambler, Mm -hmm. somebody bets. The highway is for gambler, better, comma, use your sense, C-E-N-T-S. That is in that line. Whether Dylan means that to be in that line or not, the highway is for gambler, better, use your sense, is fantastic. That's not just a clever pun. That is subconscious, deep, deep lyric writing, where you're letting associations in and out of your consciousness as you write. And I don't mean to be too mystical about it, but, you know, that's what happens. You try and write about one thing and you write another thing entirely. I have fantastic song titles ready to go. I have no idea what the songs are going to be about. So you don't go so far, though, as to, I I think I might have done this a couple of times, of actually, when it's a homonym like that, and I'm, I'm meaning to connote both, that when I'm actually writing the lyric sheet, like, put one spelling and then put the other in parentheses. Like, I, I don't know which this is. <laughs> you know? No. 
Okay. There's no, but I see, you know, the fact that there's a line break before I was wrong, wrong, wrong. So, you know, that would have been just seeing that would have prevented my misunderstanding there. Uh, well, the, the easiest way to look at that lyric and see it as it should be is to go to the music on my website mm-hmm. album. Yeah. I'm there I'm, already. What about this? Self-titled When I Knew. And that's where you see the lyric as I mean it to be presented to you. Yes. So I saying, come on, Eileen, parentheses, I was being slightly mean that you can, I meant to sing that parenthetically. So you do do things that only show up in the written version. When I write it on the page, it's all kind of written in a poetic form. That verse is completely indicative of the way that I write stuff. I mean, a lot of people, as you've noticed, don't really rhyme or... You know, I mean, they they fit in all these words into one line and then the next. But, you know, like, listen to the Smiths. I mean, that's just Morrissey singing what he wants over the preordained backing track. Uh-huh. And sometimes it gets to what is clearly meant to be the chorus, but he's not singing a chorus at that point. He's left that alone and he's doing the verse. I mean, it's bonkers. That's a dysfunctional writing partnership. <laughs> um, totally. And all the better for it. One of my favorite ones is that Chris Difford from Squeeze, as you know, told me that he would write lyrics in the form of like an old George Gershwin song. So, you know, some famous song and he'd write them to that scansion and then hand them to Tilbrook, who wouldn't know because he wouldn't tell him what he'd written it to. So Tilbrook would be able to put a completely new melody to it. I always loved that story. But you can see a lot about the way I write lyrics just from the scansion of that. I met her in my bedroom at a party Halloween. She was wearing a pair of dungarees. So I sang, come on, Eileen. I was being slightly mean and it just made her smile, which made me feel childish. I mean, that is that's just an archetypical. It's just the way things come out of my pen. I like the interior rhymes a lot. I like the way it balances more or less. And then once you find a good one, you just write five other ones and then you have a song. (laughs) All right, well, let's get Your Ghost, Don't Scare Me No More from Awake 1997 out there since you were enthused to talk about it. So Your Ghost is the first song off my 1998 album, Awake. And this was the album on which we'd made New Deal together. New Deal, I said, I don't want hardly any drums. It's just got to be me and my guitar. And I want a little bit of guitar and some strings. And it was the first kind of baroque folky album I tried to make. And we had such fun doing it, and it didn't do badly, that I said, let's do it again. But this time, we're going to throw in some drums, some beats, some synthesizers. And while on the New Deal tour, I had come up with a concept called Gangster Folk, which developed out of, I called New Deal an experiment in folk noir. But was that why we fight? Anyway, it was one of those two records, an experiment in folk noir. Folk noir, as we were driving along, me and Robert in the car, developed into gangster folk. And what gangster folk was, it's also silly. It's just silly band chat, van banter. But this was the first experiment in gangster folk. Every night at midnight 
of friends If the story is you're coming home to haunt me I'm pleased to say it has a happy end So talk about your choice of sound palette for this one, that big fat old drums and that I assume they're just what do you know where that keyboard sound came from or the one at the end that clanging? I know all about everything. OK, so this is two people as New Deal in a bedsit studio with a studio console. I mean, you know, proper equipment. But when we went to master New Deal, Bill Inglot, the famous mastering maven, said there's a very odd noise on the vocal, I can just hear the squeaky noise. 
on very quiet on the vocal. It's quite, I'd like to get rid of it if I can. Is it on there? And I said, yeah, because I was sitting on his bed while I was singing. So it was the bed springs. He could hear the bed springs on the vocal. So it was quite a Spartan situation, even though Chris was very good at dealing with it on ADAPS is what we were recording on back then. So we had a keyboard. And I mean, the simple answer to this is, it's my attempt to sound like Dr. Dre, but in a way that I could contextualize it into my song. So that thing that's going, that is either a key moniker, which I use quite a lot on the album, which is this shitty toy. Perhaps it was from China and I bought it in a rest stop. I just don't remember where it came from. And the key moniker was like a little $1 melodica. We really wanted to experiment with some sounds. So what I did was I sampled it one note, fed it into the keyboard and then played it because what it sounded like to me was those sounds on the gangster rap records. And so that's where the big drum and the that bit, that's where that comes from in my head. And so that's why we called it Gangster Folk, which was, of course, a joke. But I mean, if you listen to a song on there, there's a song on there called Burn, of which the percussion parts is basically a lighter, a match striking. It was just the time when you could, I could do these things for the first time in my life with Chris's help. I'd come up with these ideas and we'd see if we could make them work as a rhythm track. And so it didn't feel it, but I suppose you could say it was quite conceptual at the time because I was just trying to make things interesting for me in the studio. But within the confines of what I could possibly do, make it original. I mean, it's the same argument for late style, really. It's just that this was a long time ago. So this bass sound, I mean, this sounds like bass synth through a guitar pedal. Do you remember what anything about that? It's the rumbling bass from whatever keyboard I got to make it sound like it would sound like it was coming out of some bloke's very, very annoying car, very loud as he drove by me in the mission. That's what I was trying to make that sound like. Yeah, that it's throbbing and distorting at its, its... Yeah. So there are real drums on that track, but it's not the whole song. You know, we just got a section of them going, do, 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 you know. And then the click track was that... That really annoying thing. And then, so basically, you know, I would have gone in and played... I don't know what key it's in now... But this is how I played it. It's kind of like klezmer chords. Uh huh. That acoustic guitar part we would have then stripped that out entirely so there was no acoustic mm-hmm. guitar because the last thing I wanted would be, I guess there probably is acoustic guitar on the chorus. And then we would start building the track up from nothing in Chris's bedsit studio. Some of the most fun I've ever had making music because I think we both felt it was just fun and there was nothing to lose. I mean, just to make whatever we wanted in whatever way we wanted to make it and to be as imaginative as possible. It didn't matter. Yeah, I think there is acoustic lightly throughout, sort of just stuffed in one ear. It's not taking up a lot of space, but then it's not till the last verse 
you know, interesting way that the narrative and the Halloween aspect combines here because the whole thing is it's actually not spooky. That it's, it's in fact, the ghost is telling you a spooky thing at some point in there. That that is the theme of that it is humanistic, not Halloween. It's the opposite of Scrooge. Uh-huh. They have pleasant conversations because they pass the scary bit. You know, I used to be so terrified to see you moaning like the hinges on the door. That's straight Dickens. But now that late night sound is like a lullaby to me, though I know I won't be sleeping anymore because we're just going to talk all night. And then at the end, because there's a kind of a coda on the song, and that's the bit that goes more New Deal. You know, your ghost and my human living body turns out that we are the best of friends. If the story is you're coming back to haunt me, I'm pleased to say it has a happy end. And so there's a happy coda. It's a happy ghost song. Yes, that using the word opined as a verb in this, I thought, so is this that you are actually trying to connote a sort of Dickensian vibe with the... A hundred percent. But I mean, I do, people are endlessly entertained by the funny words that I use in things. I mean, apparently there's one in every song because people are going, people are always going, oh, he uses the word anti-penultimate in this or whatever it is. I mean, people like that stuff. I, I certainly don't do it to order, but I do. Um, there's a lot of words out there. Let's try and use some of them. Well, and if we're going to rhyme, we got to... Well, sure. You don't want to do the same ones every now about that. <laughs> yeah, because mind rhymes with opine. That's, that makes sense. A lot of people, I would say, would criticize, not criticize, I'm, I'm not worried about it, but, and I'm not offended by it, but would say that I rhyme quite heavily. And that's because I really like rhymes. You know, I mean, I really like them. I like the punctuation that they offer to sentences. And, you know, I mean, you speak to me in sign language while you're eating a sandwich. That to me is, that is bliss from Dylan's song sign language that he wrote that Eric Clapton, the horrible Eric Clapton recorded. That's bliss to me. And I love to fill my songs up with all kinds of, you know, I mean, basically the songs are all about something. Sure. But they are equally primarily about my love of words and using them to express things. And I mean, I say that in no they're meaningless kind of way. But to me, that is some of the greatest bits of expression, not of mine, generally. Like, you know, there's a song, a wooden overcoat on this album, Awake. Maybe it was an, an extra track. I'm not sure. Anyway, you know, that has these lines that spell out death sequentially mm. nobody would know that but it's satisfying for me to do don't ever act too humble don't eat away the heart he's tearing apart each dungeon his tails an evil dart and the first two lines spell death and then the second two lines spell death backwards i mean it's completely meaningless to anybody but me but it satisfies i do crosswords i play scrabble i like doing the wordle i'm into that kind of thing you know i like letters and I like words. I like random words. I fully appreciate David Bowie chucking things together. I fully appreciate the cut-up method. You know, I'm, I like Ulipo, where you have to write a novel, you know, without the use of the letter E. I like all those things. So sometimes I write about, it may, it may appear to you or anybody else, and it doesn't matter. Quite a simple thing. But in fact, the linguistic thing that I'm, the exploration it's come from might be something quite complicated and, and weird. It doesn't matter at all. And there's no reason to know it or even talk about it. But it's an inspiration to me. I mean, the rhyming also then provides a template. For me, at least, it makes it easier or, I don't know, more challenging 
to fit in that like I noticed that so in the first verse here you've got chains in again but you don't have the one and three you don't have to rhyme so like yeah often I would at least try like what feels natural coming out and that becomes like the crossword puzzle of how I can make every one and three and two and four rhyme or put rhymes you know I know rappers and things and they like to put rhymes inside the line that's one of the ways of spinning this out and that was one of the reasons that I was so into rap music when I was listening to it in the early 90s, because it was Victorian in its love of expansive rhyme schemes and words tripping over each other. And that really appealed to me. And that's what got me into rap music at all. And why I li- was listening to Dr. Dre and why your ghost sounds like your ghost pretty much. Because to me, in the end, they're all just the genre things. Are, you've got to make it appropriate to the sound of the song, obviously. But the genre things are all very collapsible, you know, where prog ends and fusion begins and jazz doesn't go. and no, I don't like black metal. I only like heavy metal. It's all funny to me, that stuff. It's, it's, the lines are so blurred between all of them. That's what's great about it. Well, that's what, you know, you mentioned Prefab Sprout at the beginning of the interview, and that is a band, you know, I, somebody introduced me to in college that like, hey, the music you're making is actually kind of similar to this because it was something coming from a folky perspective, but that was like, well, we can throw in some jazz chords and we can throw in some thick synths or, you know, whatever. But it's still basically folk music. It's just trying to make it not boring folk music. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that was a heady brew to me at the time. You know, that was good. And there are other people, and like Talk Talk's a little bit like that as well. Quite pastoral in its own way. I mean, like all the U's, if I read it in a bad way off the page, um, David wrote a beautiful melody for this. If I read it in a bad way off the page, it will sound horrible, but you see the rhyme scheme is like, you're everywhere I am before I get there. You're nowhere that I think you're going to be. You're always undercover. You have so many lovers. I think that maybe one of them is me. And if I read that in a nice way, you'll think it sounds very romantic. But the thing is, I like the mechanical aspect of having it very, very rigorous as I write it. It's like the bit in Get Back which I'm actually just writing a song about at the moment, though nobody will ever know that's what it's about. When Paul says, let's just get it mechanical and then we'll come back and do it properly. Let's just get the parts down mechanical. So, you know, so we sound like robots is the idea. And of course, they never get anywhere near that. But to me, that's interesting, all that stuff, because that's what I do too with the lyrics is I just make it very mechanical and then I kind of finesse it a little bit. Well, let's just introduce the last tune so we can wrap this up. So come back yesterday, though it is also retro 60s, it's not in the same way. It's not the Portuguese Stan Getz thing that, you know, some of the other ones connote. It's not Burt Bacharach. It's more the pre-psychedelic, you know, it's got a harpsichord. Let me put it that way. It's a vision of if the Partridge family made protest music. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This is a nice, fun one to send folks off on after the equally fun but spooky your ghost so to have something light here is nice what's the state of the next thing you said you're already in the middle of writing the next album yeah i mean covid is very much upset any lengthy promotion for late style and so i think i still have a a bunch to do with this album before i move on to the next thing it would be a shame because i'm very proud of it mm-hmm. but um of course you know i'm always writing and having little ideas and it's, i'll definitely make another album with david 
I think we're on a we're on a good path, you know, for at least another album. And I was there was a time where I was going to make this late style of duets album with Kelly Hogan. And so that's something. And that this album nearly was that. If COVID hadn't intervened, we might well have done this as a duets album. So perhaps that's something for the future, if not the next record. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for your time. And it was a pleasure immersing myself in your music the last couple of weeks. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for choosing the song so nicely. Must be beginner's luck I don't know how But you got it done I guess you're a lucky duck So wave your medal upon the podium And then please go away Oh, oh, come back yesterday You've got the balls for a struggle, baby But you don't have the stomach for love You want it all to be all about you And even that isn't enough So eat your words and delete your account You're old and in the way Oh, 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 come back yesterday Way back before Hitler, baby I think we were warned of it How the man who believes in nothing at all Wears any clothes that fit And they'll cover up every crime they commit To delay the moment they Oh, oh, come back yesterday Your clothes will be way back in style like your views And women in the kitchens Or maybe it's muses And old worlds to conquer And slaves with the blues And ask but don't tell Except when you're cruising And problems you cause You can blame on the Jews It's better for everyone The kids round here have got wide open minds They're more empathetic than you But even the cutest cannot relate to your antediluvian views Your monument will be your grave, the epitaph will say Oh, 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 come back yesterday Turn back time Yet nobody smart wants to live in the past Or go back to primordial slime Soon you'll be gone So please move along Tomorrow just call to say Oh, oh, oh come back yesterday Thanks so much to Wesley. Just the kind of chatty, literate guest that I love to talk to. You can hear more of him at wesleystace.com. For my next episode, I am thrilled to have talked to Bob Mould of Sugar and Husker Du fame. And after that, Ben Vaughn, 
who has a very 60s style. You've heard him on like that 70s show. He wrote the theme for Third Rock from the Sun, other things. You can hear all of those and my many previous interviews by subscribing directly to this podcast through one of the many links at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or by paying to get the ad-free version with my notes through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. And if you use Apple Podcasts and are listening to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, there is a button you can click to upgrade to the paid version of that feed, which gets you ad-free stuff from not only this podcast, but also pretty much pop and philosophy versus improv, both shows that you should spend some time with if you have not already. I do not say often enough that this is a podcast from the Partially Examined Life Network and is also featured when I get around to writing posts for it at openculture.com. So thanks to them. Hey, does something in this intro and outro sound different? I have a new mic. An SM7B I've upgraded from my AKG 3000, which I use since the 90s through the entirety of my 13-year podcasting career. So a big step. Hope you enjoyed this episode and you're all doing well. In whatever way you can, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyer signing off.